0: Chapter 32, Setology. Already we are boldly launched upon the deep, but soon we shall be lost in its unshored, harborless immensities. Ere that come to pass, ere the Pequod's weedy hull rolls side by side with the barnacled hulls of the Leviathan, at the outset it is but well to attend to a matter almost indispensable to a thorough appreciative understanding of the more special, leviathanic revelations and allusions of all sorts which are to follow. It is some systematized exhibition of the whale in his broad uh, genera that I would now fain put before you. Yet it is no easy task, the uh, classification of the constituents of a chaos, <laughs> nothing less is here assayed. Listen to what the best and latest authorities have laid down. No branch of zoology is so much involved as that which is entitled Cytology, says Captain Scoresby, A.D. 1820. It is not my intention, were it in my power, to enter into the inquiry as to the true method of dividing the cetacea into groups and families. Utter confusion exists among the historians of this animal, sperm whale, says surgeon Beale, A.D. 1839. Unfitness to pursue our research in the unfathomable waters impenetrable veil covering our knowledge of the cetacea, a field strewn with thorns, all these incomplete indications but serve to torture us as naturalists. Thus speak of the whale, the great Cuvier, and John Hunter, and Lesson, whose uh, lights of, those lights of zoology and anatomy. Nevertheless, though of real knowledge there be little, yet of books there are plenty, and so in some small degree with cetology, or the science of whales. Many are the men, small and great, old and new, landsmen and seamen, who have at large or in little written of the whale. Run over a few. The authors of the Bible. Aristotle, Pliny, uh, Aldrovandi, Sir Thomas Brown, Gessner, Ray, Linnaeus, Rondelicious, Willoughby, Green, Artidi, Sibold, Brisson, uh, Martin, Lasseped, Bonterre, Demarest, uh, Baron-Cuvier, Frederick Cuvier, John Hunter, Owen Scoresby, Beale, Bennett, J. Ross Brown, the author of uh, Miriam Coffin, Olmsted, and the Reverend T. Cheever. But, to what ultimate generalizing purpose all these have written, the extracts will show. Of the names in this list of whale authors, only those following Owen ever saw living whales, and but one of them was a real professional harpooner and whaleman, I mean Captain Scoresby. On the uh, separate subject of the Greenland or right whale, he is the best existing authority. But Scoresby knew nothing and says nothing of the great sperm whale, compared with which the Greenland whale is almost unworthy mentioning. And here be it said that the Greenland whale is a usurper upon the throne of the seas. He's not even by any means the largest of the whales. Yet owing to the long priority of his claims and the profound ignorance which till some 70 years back invested the then fabulous or, or utterly unknown sperm whale in which ignorance to this present day still reigns in all but some few scientific retreats and whale ports, this usurpation has been every way complete. Reference to nearly all the leviathanic allusions in the great poets of past days will satisfy you that... Uh, The Greenland whale, without one rival, was to them the monarch of the seas. But the time has at last come for a new proclamation. This is Charing Cross, hear ye. Good people all, the Greenland whale is deposed. The great sperm whale now reigneth. There are only two books in being which at all pretend to put the living sperm whale before you and at the same time in the uh, remotest degree succeed in the attempt. Those books are... Beals and Bennett's, both in their time surgeons to English South Sea whale ships, and both exact and reliable men. The original matter touching the sperm whale to be found in their volumes is necessarily small, but so far as it goes, it's of excellent quality, and though mostly confined to scientific description. As yet, however, the sperm whale, scientific or poetic, lives not complete in any literature. Far above all other hunted whales, his is an unwritten life. Now, the various species of whales need some sort of popular comprehensive classification, if only an easy outline one for the present, hereafter to be filled in uh, all its departments by subsequent laborers. As no better man advances to take this matter in hand, I uh, hereupon offer my own poor endeavors. I promise nothing complete, because any human thing supposed to be complete must be for that very reason infallibly be faulty. But I shall not pretend to a minute anatomical description of the various species or, uh, in this place at least, to much of any description. My object here is simply to project the draft of a systematization of cytology and the architect, not the builder. But it's a ponderous task. No ordinary letter sorter in the post office is equal to it. To grope down into the bottom of the sea after them, to have one's hands among the unspeakable foundations, ribs, and very pelvis of the world, that's, that's a fearful thing. What am I that I should essay to hook the nose of this leviathan, and the awful tauntings in Job might well appall me? Uh, will he, uh, the leviathan, make a covenant with thee? Behold, the hope of him is vain but I have swam through libraries and sailed through oceans. I've had to do with whales with these visible hands. I am in earnest, and I will try." There are some preliminaries to settle. First, the uh, uncertain, unsettled condition of the science of cytology is in the very vestibule attested by the fact that in some quarters it still remains a moot point whether the whale be a fish. In his System of Nature, AD 1776, Linnaeus declares, I hereby separate the whales from the fish. But of my own knowledge, I know that down to the year 1850, sharks and shad, alewives and herring against Linnaeus' express edict were still found dividing the possession of the same seas with the leviathan. The uh, grounds upon which Linnaeus would fain have banished the whales from the waters, he states as follows. On account of their warm, bilocular heart, their lungs, their movable eyelids, their hollow ears, penem entrantem femina mamis lactantem, and finally, ex lege naturae uh, ure meritoque. I submitted all this to my friends Simeon Macy and Charlie Coffin of Nantucket, both messmates of mine in a certain voyage, and uh, they united in the opinion that the reasons set forth were altogether insufficient. Charlie profanely hinted they were humbug. Be it known that, waiving all argument, I take the good old-fashioned ground that the whale is a fish, and call upon Holy Jonah to back me. The fundamental thing is settled. The next point is, in uh, what internal respect does the whale differ from other fish? Above, Linnaeus has given you those items, but in brief, they are these, lungs and warm blood, whereas all other fish are lungless and cold-blooded. Next, how shall we define the whale by his obvious externals, so as conspicuously to label him for all time to come? To be short, then, a whale is a spouting fish with a horizontal tail. There you have him. However contracted, that definition is the result of expanded meditation. Uh, A walrus spouts much like a whale, but the walrus is not a fish because he's amphibious. But the last term of the definition is still more cogent, is coupled with the first. Almost anyone must have noticed that all the fish familiar to landsmen have not a flat, but a vertical, up-and-down tail. Whereas among spouting fish, the tail, though it may be similarly shaped, invariably assumes a horizontal position. By the above definition of what a whale is, I I do by no means exclude from the Leviathanic Brotherhood any sea creature hitherto identified with the whale by the the best-informed Nantucketers, nor on the other hand link with it any fish hitherto authoritatively regarded as alien. By the way, I am aware that down to the present time, the fish-styled laminatons and dugongs, uh, pigfish and sowfish of the coffins of Nantucket, are included by many naturalists among the whales. But as these pigfish are a nosy, uh, contemptible set, mostly lurking in the mouths of rivers and feeding on wet hay, and and especially as they do not spout, I deny their credentials as whales and have presented them with their passports to uh, quit the kingdom of cytology. Hence, all the smaller spouting and horizontal-tailed fish must be included in this ground plan of cytology. Now then, come the grand divisions of the entire whale host. First, according to magnitude, I divide the whales into three primary books, subdivisible into chapters, and these shall comprehend them all, both small and large. One, the folio whale. Two, the octavo whale. Three, the duodecimo whale. As the uh, type of the folio one, I present the sperm whale, the octavo, the grampus, of the duodecimo, decimo, the porpoise. Folios among these I here include the following chapters. 1. The sperm whale. 2. The right whale. 3. The finback whale. 4. The Humpbacked whale. 5. The razorback whale. 6. The sulfur bottom whale. Book 1. Folio. Chapter 1. Sperm whale. This whale among the English of old, uh, vaguely known as the the Trumpa whale, and the Ficeter whale, and the anvil-headed whale, is the present cachalot of the French, and the potzfish of the Germans, and the uh, macrocephalus of the long words. He is, without doubt, the largest inhabitant of the globe, the most formidable of all whales to encounter, the most majestic in aspect, And lastly, by far the most valuable in commerce, he being the only creature from which that that valuable substance, spermaceti, is obtained. All his peculiarities will in many other places be enlarged upon. It is chiefly with his name that I now have to do. uh, Philologically considered, it is absurd. Some centuries ago, when the sperm whale was almost wholly unknown in his own proper individuality, and when his oil was only accidentally obtained from the stranded fish. In those days, Spermaceti, it would seem, was popularly supposed to be derived from a creature identical with the one then known in England as the Greenland or right whale. It was the idea also that in this same Spermaceti was that quickening humor of the Greenland whale which the first syllable of the word literally expresses. In those times also uh, Spermaceti was exceedingly scarce, not being used for light but only as an ointment and a a medicament. It it had only to be had from the druggists, as you nowadays buy an ounce of rhubarb. When, as I opine, in the course of time, the true nature of spermaceti became known, its original name was still retained by the dealers, no doubt to enhance its value by a notion so strangely significant of its scarcity. And so the appellation much at last have come to be uh, bestowed upon the whale from which this spermaceti was really derived. Book 1, Folio, Chapter 2, Right Whale. In uh, one respect, this is the most venerable of the Leviathans, being the one first regularly hunted by man. It yields the article commonly known as whalebone or baleen and the oil specially known as whale oil, an inferior article in commerce. Among the fishermen, he is indiscriminately designated by all the following titles. the, The whale... The green whale, a Greenland whale, the black whale, the great whale, the true whale, the right whale. And there is a deal of obscurity concerning the identity of the species thus uh, multitudinously baptized. What then is the whale, which I include in the second species of my folios? It is the great mysticetus of the English naturalists, the Greenland whale of the English whalemen, the baleen ordinaire of the French whaleman. The growlands Wallfish, Wallfish of the Swedes. It, it, it's the whale which for more than two centuries past has been hunted by the Dutch and English in the Arctic Seas. It is the whale which the American fishermen have long pursued in the Indian Ocean on the um, Brazil banks, on the northwest coast and various other parts of the world designated by them right whale cruising grounds. Now, some pretend to see a difference between the Greenland whale of the English and the right whale of the Americans, but they precisely agree in all their grand features, nor has there yet been presented a single determinate fact upon which to ground a radical distinction. It is by uh, endless subdivisions based upon the most uh, inconclusive differences that some departments of natural history become so repellingly intricate. The right whale will be elsewhere treated of at some length with reference to elucidating the sperm whale. Book 1, Folio, Chapter 3. Finback. Now, under this head I reckon a uh, monster which by the various names of Finback, uh, Tall, Spout, and uh, Long John, has been seen almost in every sea and is commonly the whale whose distant jet is so often described by passengers crossing the Atlantic in the New York packet tracks. In the length he attains, and in his baleen, the Finback resembles the right whale. Is of a less portly uh, girth and a lighter color, approaching to olive. His great lips present a cable like aspect, formed by the intertwisting, slanting folds of large wrinkles. His grand distinguishing feature, the fin, from which he derives his name, finback, is often a conspicuous object. This fin is sometimes some three or four feet long, growing vertically from the hinder part of the back, of an angular shape, and with a very sharp pointed end. Even if not for uh, the slightest other part of the creature be visible, this isolated fin will at times be seen plainly projecting from the surface. When the sea is moderately calm and uh, slightly marked with spherical ripples, and this this gnomon-like fin stands up and casts shadows upon a wrinkled surface, it may well be supposed that the watery circle surrounding it somewhat resembles a dial, with its uh, style and wavy hour lines graved on it. On that -ah ha-a-ha's dial, the shadow often goes back. The finback is not gregarious. He seems a whale-hater, as some men are man-haters, very shy, always going solitary, uh, unexpectedly rising to the surface in the remotest and most sullen waters. His straight and single lofty jet, rising like a tall misanthropic spear upon a barren plain, gifted with such wondrous power and velocity in swimming as to defy all present pursuit from man. This leviathan seems the banished and unconquerable cane of his race, bearing for his mark that style upon his back. From having the baleen in his mouth, the finback is sometimes included with the right whale, among a theoretic species dominated, denominated uh, whalebone whales, that is, whales with baleen. Of these so-called whalebone whales there would seem to be several varieties, most of which, however, are little known. Broad-nosed whales and beaked whales, pike-headed whales, uh, bunched whales, under-jawed whales, and uh, rostrated whales are the fishermen's names for a few sorts. In connection with this appellative of, uh, of whalebone whales, it is of great importance to mention that uh, however such a nomenclature may be convenient in facilitating allusions to some kinds of whales, yet it is in vain to attempt a clear classification of the leviathan founded upon either his baleen or hump or fin or teeth. Notwithstanding that those marked parts or features very obviously seem better adapted to afford the basis for a uh, regular system of cytology than any other detached bodily distinctions which the whale in his kinds presents. Well, how then? The baleen, hump, back fin, and teeth These are things whose peculiarities are indiscriminately dispersed among all sorts of whales, without any regard to what may be the nature of their structure in other and more essential particulars. Thus the sperm whale and the humpbacked whale each has a hump, but there the similitude ceases. Then this same humpbacked whale and the Greenland whale, each of these has baleen, but there again the similitude ceases. And it's just the same with the other parts above mentioned. In various sorts of whales, they form such irregular combinations, or in the case of any one of them, detach such an irregular isolation, as utterly to defy all general methodization formed upon such a basis. On this rock, every one of the whale naturalists has split. But it may possibly be conceived that in the internal parts of the whale, in his anatomy, there at least we shall be able to hit the right classification. Nay, <laughs> what thing, for example, is there in the Greenland whale's anatomy more striking than his baleen? Yet we've seen that by his baleen it's impossible correctly to classify the Greenland whale. And if you descend into the bowels of the various leviathans, why, there you will not find distinctions of fiftieth part as available to the systematizer as those external ones already enumerated. What then remains? Nothing but to take hold of the whales bodily in their entire liberal volume and just boldly sort them that way. And this is the bibliographical system here adopted, and it's the only one that can possibly succeed, for it alone is practicable. To proceed. Book 1, Folio, Chapter 4, Humpback. Oh, this whale's often seen on the northern American coast. He's been frequently captured there and towed into harbor. He has a great pack on him, like a peddler, or you might call him the elephant and castle whale. At any rate, the popular name for him does not sufficiently distinguish him since the sperm whale also has a hump, though a smaller one. His oil is not very valuable. He has baleen. He is the most gamesome and light-hearted of all the whales, making more gay foam and white water generally than any other of them. Book 1, Folio, Chapter 5, Razorback. Of this whale, little is known but his name. I have seen him at a distance off Cape Horn, of a retiring nature, he eludes both hunters and philosophers. Though no coward, he has never yet shown any part of him but his back, which rises in a long, sharp ridge. Let him go. I know I know a little more of him, nor does anybody else. Book 1, Folio, Chapter 6, Sulphur Bottom. Another retiring gentleman with a brimstone belly doubtless got by scraping along the Tartarian tiles in some of his profounder divings. He's seldom seen. Well, at least i have never seen him except in the remoter southern seas and then always at too great a distance to study his countenance he's never chased he, he would run away with the rope walks of line prodigies are told of him hmm. adieu sulfur bottom i can say nothing more that is tree of ye nor can the oldest Nantucketer. now thus ends book one folio and now begins book two octavo octavos now uh, by the way, why this book of whales is not denominated the quarto is very plain, because while the whales of this order, though smaller than those of the former order, nevertheless retain a proportionate likeness to them in figure. Yet the bookbinder's quarto volume, in its diminished form, does not preserve the shape of the folio volume, but the octavo volume does. These embrace the whales of of middling magnitude among which at present may be numbered one, the grampus, two, the blackfish, three, the narwhale, four, the thrasher, five, the killer. Book two, Octavo chapter one, grampus. Now though this fish whose loud sonorous breathing, or rather, or blowing, has furnished a a proverb to landsmen, is so well known a denizen of the deep, yet he is not popularly classified among whales. but possessing all the grand distinctive features of the Leviathan. Most naturalists have recognized him for one. He is of moderate octavo size, uh, varying from 15 to 25 feet in length and of corresponding dimensions around the waist. He swims in herds. He's never regularly hunted, though his oil is considerable in quality and uh, pretty good for light. By some fishermen, his approach is regarded as premonitory of the advance of the great sperm whale. Book 2, Octavo, Chapter 2, Blackfish. I give the popular fishermen's names for all these fish, for for generally they are the best. Where any name happens to be vague or inexpressive, I shall say so and suggest another. I, I do so now touching the blackfish, so-called, because, because blackness is the rule among almost all whales, so l- call him the hyena whale, if you please. His veracity is well known, and uh, from the circumference that the the circumstance that the the inner angles of his lips are curved upward, he carries an everlasting mephistophelian grin on his face. This whale averages some 16 or 18 feet in length. He's found in almost all latitudes. He has a, a, a peculiar way of showing his dorsal hooked fin in swimming, which looks something like a Roman nose. When not more profitably employed, the sperm whale hunters sometimes capture the hyena whale to keep up the supply of cheap oil for domestic employment. As some... Frugal housekeepers, in the absence of company and quite alone by themselves, burn unsavory tallow instead of odorous wax. Though their blubber is very thin, some of these whales will yield upwards of uh, thirty gallons of oil. Book two, octavo, chapter three, narwhale—that is, nostril whale—another instance of a curiously named whale, so named, I suppose, from his uh, peculiar horn being originally mistaken for a peaked nose. The creature is some 16 feet in length, while its horn averages 5 feet, though some exceed 10, and even attain to 15 feet. Strictly speaking, this horn is but a lengthened tusk, growing out from the jaw in a line a little depressed from the horizontal, but it's only found on the sinister side, which has an ill effect, giving its owner something analogous to the aspect of a clumsy left-handed man precise purpose this ivory horn or lance answers, it would be hard to say. It does not seem to be used like the blade of the swordfish and billfish, though some sailors tell me that the narwhal employs it for a rake and turning over the bottom of the sea for food. Charlie Coffin said it was used for an ice piercer, for the uh, narwhal rising to the surface of the polar sea and finding it sheeted with ice thrusts his horn up and so he breaks through. But you uh, cannot prove either of these surmises to be correct. My own opinion is that however this one-sided horn may really be used by the narwhal, however that may be, it would certainly be very convenient to him for a a folder in reading pamphlets. This narwhal I have heard called the tusk whale, the horn whale, and the unicorn whale. He's certainly the curious example of the, the unicornism to be found in almost every kingdom of animated nature. From certain cloistered old authors, I have gathered that this same sea unicorn's horn was in ancient days regarded as the great antidote against poison, and as such, preparations of it brought immense prices. Uh, it was also distilled to uh, volatile salts for fainting ladies, the same way that the horns of the male deer are manufactured into Hart's horn. Originally, it was in itself accounted an object of great curiosity. Blackletter tells me that Sir Martin Frobisher, on his return from that Voyage when Queen Bess did gallantly wave her jewelled hand to him from a window of Greenwich Palace as his bold ship sailed down the Thames. Well, when Sir Martin returned from that voyage, saith Blackletter, on bended knees he presented to her highness a prodigious long horn of the narwhale, which for a long period after hung in the castle at Windsor. An Irish author avers that the Earl of Leicester, on bended knees, did likewise present to her highness another horn, pertaining to a land beast of the unicorn nature. The narwhale has a very picturesque, leopard-like look, being of a milk-white ground color, dotted with round and uh, oblong spots of black. His oil is very superior, clear and fine, but there's little of it, and he's seldom hunted. He is mostly found in the circumpolar seas. Book two, Octavo, Chapter 4, Killer. Of this whale, little is precisely known to the Nantucketer, and nothing at all to the professed naturalist. From what I've seen of him at a distance, I I should say that he was uh, uh, about the bigness of a grampus. Oh, he's very savage, a sort of Fiji fish. He sometimes takes the great folio whales by the lip and and hangs there like a leech till the mighty brute is worried to death. The killer's never hunted. I never heard what sort of oil he has. Exception might be taken to the name uh, bestowed upon his whale on the ground of its indistinctness, for we're all killers. (laughs) on land and on sea. Bonaparts and sharks included. Book 2 Octavo Chapter 5 Thrasher. This gentleman is famous for his tail which he uses for a ferrule in, uh, thrashing his foes. He mounts the folio whales back and as he swims he works his passage by flogging him as many schoolmasters get along in the world by a similar process. Still less is known of the thrasher than of the killer. Both are outlaws even in the lawless seas. Thus ends book two, octavo, and begins book three, duodecimo. Duodecimos, these include the smaller whales. One, the huzza porpoise. Two, the algerine porpoise. Three, the mealy-mouthed porpoise. Uh, To those who have not chanced specially to study the subject, it may possibly seem strange that fishes not commonly exceeding four or five feet should be marshaled among whales, a a word which in the popular sense always conveys an idea of... uh, of hugeness, but the creatures set down above as duodecimos are infallibly whales, by the terms of my definition of what a whale is, i.e. a a spouting fish with a horizontal tail. Book 3, Duodecimo, Chapter 1, Huzza Porpoise. This is the common porpoise found almost all over the globe. The name is of my own bestowal, Huzza, for there are more than one sort of porpoises and something must be done to distinguish him. I call him thus because he always swims in hilarious shoals, (laughs) which upon the broad sea keep tossing themselves to heaven like caps in a Fourth of July crowd. Their appearance is generally hailed with delight by the mariner, full of fine spirits they invariably come from the breezy billows to windward. They are the lads that always live before the wind. And they're accounted a lucky omen. If you yourself can withstand three cheers at beholding these vivacious fish, then heaven help you, the spirit of godly gamesome is not in you. A well fed, plump, huzza porpoise, will yield you one good gallon of good oil. But the fine and delicate fluid extracted from his jaws is exceedingly valuable. It's in request among jewelers and watchmakers. Sailors put it on their homes. Uh, Porpoise meat is good eating, you you know. know, It may never have occurred to you that a porpoise uh, spouts, too. Indeed, uh, his spout is so small that it's not very readily discernible. But the next time you have a chance, watch him, and you will then see the great sperm whale himself in miniature. Book 3, Duodecima, Chapter 2, Algerine Porpoise. A pirate, very savage. He's only found, I think, in the Pacific. He is somewhat larger than the Huzza porpoise, but much of the same general make. Provoke him, and he will buckle to a shark. I've lured for him many times, but never yet saw him captured. Book 3, Duodecimo, Chapter 3, Mealymouth Porpoise. The largest kind of porpoise, and uh, only found in the Pacific, so far as it's known. The only English name by which he has hitherto been designated is that of the fishers, Right Whale Porpoise from the circumstance that he's chiefly found in the vicinity of that folio. In shape, he differs in some degree from the Porpoise, being of a less rotund and jolly girth. Indeed, he's a, uh, quite a neat and gentlemanlike figure. He has no fins on his back, most other porpoises have. He has a lovely tail, and sentimental Indian eyes of a hazel hue. But his mealy mouth spoils all, though his entire back down to his side fins is of a deep sable, yet A boundary line distinct as the mark in a ship's hull called the bright waist. That that line streaks him from stem to stern with two separate colors, black above and white below. The white comprises part of his head and the whole of his mouth, which makes him look as if he had just uh, escaped from a felonious visit to the meal bag, (laughs) a most mean and mealy aspect. His oil is much like that of the common porpoise. Beyond the duodecimo, this system does not proceed inasmuch as the porpoise is the smallest of the whales. Above, you have all the leviathans of note. But there uh, are a rabble of uh, uncertain, fugitive, half-fabulous whales, which, as an American whaleman, I know by reputation, but not personally. I shall enumerate them by their uh, folks' appellations, for possibly such a list may be valuable to future investigators who may complete what I have here but begun. If any of the following whales shall hereafter be caught and marked, then he can readily be incorporated into this system according to his folio, octavo or duodecimo magnitude. The bottlenose whale, the junk whale, the pudding-headed whale, the cape whale, the leading whale, the cannon whale, the scrag whale, the coppered whale, the elephant whale, the iceberg whale, the quag whale, the blue whale, etc. In old English authorities, there might be quoted other lists of uncertain whales blessed with all manner of uncouth names, but uh, I omit them as altogether obsolete and can hardly help suspecting them for mere sounds, full of leviathanism but signifying nothing. Finally, it was stated at the outset that this system would not be here and at once perfected. You, you, you cannot but plainly see that I have kept my word. But I now leave my cetological system standing thus unfinished even as the great cathedral of Cologne was left with the crane still standing upon the top of the uncompleted tower. For small erections may be finished by their first architects, grand ones, true ones, ever leave the copestone to posterity. God keep me from ever completing anything. This whole book is but a draft. (laughs) Hey, but the draft of a draft. Oh, time strength, cash, patience.